Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass. So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. In 2020 so far, events have yet again shone a spotlight on racial inequalities across the globe. And in Australia, 20 years on from the reconciliation walks of the year 2000, this country's journey towards a more just, equitable and reconciled nation still has a long way to go. With that in mind, and in the spirit of reconciliation, we acknowledge the traditional custodians of the country throughout Australia and their connections to land, sea and community. We pay our respects to their elders, past, present, and extend that respect to all Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander peoples today. Welcome to Policy Forum Pod, the podcast for those who want to dig a little deeper into the policy challenges facing Australia and the Asia-Pacific. As you might be able to tell, I'm not Martin Pierce. Your regular podcast host is safe and well, and I promise he'll be returning in working order in a few weeks' time. But for now, there's a new sheriff in town. My name's Anna Greta Hunter, and I've launched a not-so-hostile takeover of Policy Forum Pod. When I'm not moonlighting as your podcast presenter, I'm a cardiologist, I work as a specialist at Canberra Hospital, and I'm a senior clinical lecturer at the ANU Medical School. Some of you might know me as a former panellist on this podcast, as well as Ask Policy Forum and uh, Democracy Sausage. If you don't know about Ask Policy Forum yet, that might be because you're not part of our Facebook group. You can join the pod squad. There's a bunch of our awesome listeners as well as regular hosts and some of our panellists by typing in Policy Forum Pod into the search bar on Facebook. You'll also get special access to Ask Policy Forum series, the podcast where you get to ask the questions. So pause the pod here for a sec and join us. We can't wait to welcome you. Now, as the new queen of the castle, or maybe it's an ivory tower, here for the next couple of weeks, I'm going to be hoping to bring you something a little special. I'm the inaugural Human Futures Fellow at ANU this year, and in that role, I'm passionate about climate change, about health, about interdependent risks and benefits, and how we can create the best future for humanity. That's why, following my policy forum, Coup d'etat, we'll be looking at our human future. This week, starting with food, climate change, oh, and and that other thing that's been affecting our lives at the moment. So this week, we're going to talk a little bit about food, and I thought I should introduce uh, the Commission for the Human Future as a body that's influenced this discussion quite strongly. The Commission for the Human Future is a new body that was created, born out of an emeritus professorial group at ANU, uh, and the body was created at the end of 2019. The purpose of the Commission is to identify multiple catastrophic and existential risks that are faced and that these risks include problems like nuclear war, pandemics, climate change, pollution, water, biodiversity loss, artificial intelligence and of course food. The Commission's hosted two roundtables so far, and most recently we hosted the second roundtable, bringing together a range of experts across the diverse elements of our food system. The report titled Food is at the Heart of Our Future is available on the Commission for Human Futures website and we'll link it to the podcast. 
So I thought food is a really interesting existential or catastrophic factor. Food is an essential part of how we live and where we live, and it's an element of life which is tremendously important. It's also one that perhaps many of us don't give as much attention to. So I thought we might start today's conversation by talking about food. But before we get on to our conversation about food, let's introduce the panellists for today. I'm delighted to be joined by two extraordinary women. First, Dr. Tayana O'Donnell. She's local here in Canberra. She's a lawyer and a human geographer, and she's the executive director of Future Earths Australia. My second guest is Robin Alders, who's an honorary professor with the Development Policy Centre within Australian National University. She's a senior scientific advisor with the Chatham House Centre on Global Health Security, chair of the Kayema Foundation, an adjunct professor in the Department of Infectious Diseases and Global Health, the School of Veterinary Medicine at Tufts University. And she's chair of the Upper Lachlan branch of the New South Wales Pharma Association. So I'm so pleased to welcome these two women into what I hope is a great conversation around food, climate change and our human future. I thought I might start then by talking about interrelated risks and asking Robin Alders to explain to us uh, the nature and the, the conversation that emerged from the Commission for the Human Future Roundtable. Robin, could you tell us a little about the Roundtable and the subsequent report? Thanks so much, Anna Greta. It's really wonderful to be joining you for this really important conversation. The Commission for the Human Future Uh, convened a roundtable at the end of May. We were very fortunate to have uh, excellent participants uh, from across Australia, internationally, and a broad range of disciplinary and sectoral backgrounds. One of the amazing things, and you mentioned it in the introduction, is that we don't really think about food, and yet none of us would be here without it. And as we think about this global world of ours where we've seen um, increasing move of people to live in urban areas, increasing numbers of uh, people in general, and yet our agricultural uh, systems that support us um, are being challenged, and they're being challenged everywhere here in Australia and globally. They're being challenged on a number of fronts, uh, both in terms of um, the economic viability. Many smallholder and family farmers actually don't make a great income. They often rely on off-farm work to be able to keep them going. So those people that produce this food that we enjoy every day are not bearing the fruit of their labour in that particular um, fashion. What we know um, in countries around the world is that agriculture, as it has grown and become more intensive, has in many cases mined, mined the soil, mind the water uh, and hasn't always been able to maintain agricultural productivity in the way we like. We um, New land is being cleared to be able to expand um, farming activities to, to support the need for, for food. And uh, in terms of social situations, um, those people who produce it are not always seen in, in a great light. And we have the tricky situation where we have a a distribution system, a food system that's not delivering the the outcome that we need. So in fact, we're producing more food than we've ever produced produced, uh, since agriculture started about 10,000 years ago. We have 
what we have seen over the last uh, 50 years is with the move to a more globalized system and, and food that's moving long distances, um, food that's being harvested as a, a natural food is then being reprocessed and recombined into ultra-processed food. It sits well, it travels well, it can last for a long time on the shelf, but its nutrient profile is not necessarily one that will help us. So that we know, for instance, here in Australia, an average person um, is not necessarily getting uh, a balanced diet. We have an increasing problem with food and with uh, obesity, with overweight. And interestingly, the people who are overweight are often deficient in vitamins and minerals. And that's because a large part of our diet, uh, the average is 40% of our diet, is coming from ultra-processed foods. So when we look and and Hopefully, you're going to make time to go and uh, have a look at this report that's available for, for download. It's divided into two parts. It talks about the risks, the risks to health, where, um, as Julian Cribb says, um, we're being killed by our own hand, and that's the hand that feeds us. Um, we, we understand that we have huge environmental problems, and uh, and particularly now with the COVID-19 pandemic, we are seeing that our even our supply lines are being challenged. That's supply lines for delivering food and supply lines for getting inputs to farmers so that they can so that they can actually produce for the next harvest that's coming up. But um, the good news is that we do then move on to look at solutions. And there are some really exciting solutions out there from going um, for employing uh, agricultural production systems that either maintain uh, healthy soils and, and f healthy and safe water or enhance that through uh, approaches that are called regenerative agriculture. The Europeans call it agroecology. And in fact, here in Australia, we're the home of permaculture. This idea of being able to live sustainably and, and have a, a healthy environment around that. So that's a, a key feature of the solutions. And here in Australia, we have a lot to offer. We just need uh, pricing mechanisms and regulatory frameworks that are going to make that transition for farmers and producers to make that transition possible um, in, in a challenging economic environment. We also, as uh, we've mentioned, urban food security is going to be as increasing numbers of people now live in urban areas and Australia in particular is a very urbanised society, looking at ways that we can produce at least part of our food and do this safely and efficiently in our urban areas, looking at opportunities for aquaculture um, and for better management of our, our marine resources, looking at circular food economies, a really exciting um, dialogue is emerging there, and helping us to think and to um, engage more with our food. And partly this is going to come down to education as well, both education at school and continuing education for all of us, for us to think about who we are, how old we are, what's our gender, how are we feeling, how do we meet our needs um, uh, and put together a food basket that's affordable for us, that's going to be good for our health and that's going to uh, ensure that farmers are, and, and fishers are, are getting a fair return for them to be able to manage their resources fairly. So um, while the 
the opening section um, of the report is relatively gloomy because situations are incredibly challenging. The opportunity for change and change that's going to be good on multiple fronts is there. And so the, the conclusion and the optimism, I think, on which we finish um, provides great hope and, uh, and hopefully encouragement for all of us to engage in this topic. Mm, thanks very much for that summary, Robin. Um, it, it struck me as we were working on the Food Roundtable and bringing together all sorts of people from different and, uh, and interesting parts of academia and civil society um, that, that for many people walking down the street, food is an assumption. We assume that food access uh, is, is, is going to be ongoing. We assume that, that the challenges of food lie elsewhere and I do think we tend to assume that it's a risk that is less common in Australia and yet it's most definitely Definitely relevant, and I think you've you've just highlighted some of the the ways in which the pandemic might might demonstrate that to us. Um, it's a, it, on one level, food seems so simple. We go to the fridge, or we go to the kitchen, and we make something, or we go down the street and we buy something. And yet, when we start to pull apart the elements of that system, it's an extraordinary uh, example of interdependence, interrelationships, and the way in which it works outside. And so, is there one particular element of the food system that you think would require uh, further attention? Where, where would we, where would we, should we put our mind, or is do we have to look across a variety of different elements? Um, I think we are all in this together. I think everyone and, and the various disciplines and sectors all have a, a role to play. My personal opinion that one of the major challenges for us to be able to um, uh, make adjustments to existing systems, so not turning everything completely on its head, but using um, our, our economies and our ways of doing things that are in place, we have to... Um, for that to continue to happen, we have to value food differently. So most of the food and the way it's traded as a commodity, farmers and fisher folk are paid on the basis of weight or volume in general. It then goes off and re-emerges uh, in shops and in supermarkets with a very different uh, uh, pricing structure, but with very limited information about what you're actually eating. I do think that for um, food to become affordable and for people to put together affordable food baskets, um, the technology is there now for us to uh, understand that, say, for instance, if you buy uh, a bottle of Coke, uh, you're, you're a, a young woman, um, you're, um, uh, you've hit puberty, so you, you are going to have increased iron requirements because of the, the various processes there. But you can drink all the Coke that you want and you will never meet your, your needs for iron uh, through your diet. However, there are a range of foods and some of them quite um, uh, relatively inexpensive that you could eat once a month that would meet your iron requirements. But how do you find that out? The pricing system doesn't tell you. You get a set price. So I think one of the, the exciting things will be to have technology work with us to help us um, to come up with a, a price of food that takes into account its nutritional profile to help you build your food basket according to your nutritional needs. But at the same time, that also gives you an indication of where that food came from. Is it coming from uh, an environment where the environment's being maintained or not? So this is working with the economic system 
but changing what we value. Um, I'm, I hopefully I've answered your question, but if not, let me know. No, no, I think that I think that's really good. So some of the solutions that we see in the food uh, security space will be about how we value food. It, it no doubt comes back in part to our financial uh, management um, and the financial systems. Um, some people wondered about, you know, whether the capitalist system then is a consumptogenic system. Um, and I, I've, I've been greatly influenced by reading uh, Sharon Friel's book on human uh, health and climate change, where she really looks at the way the role that the financial system plays in our consumption of food and, and poor quality food and then the climate change impact of that model uh, as well as the human health impacts of that. And it's an extraordinary thesis. Again, another piece of reading for us all to do. Um, Robin, I wonder how you see the overlaps between the food report that we've put forward and some of the other threats. And I'm, I'm thinking particularly about climate change. Um, how, how closely interdependent do you think these risks are? Uh, totally interdependent. And uh, what we know here in Australia and globally, food production is already being impacted by climate change. So the, the, the rising temperatures, the increase in extreme weather events, this is having a negative impact on uh, farm production and on, on farmer and fisher income. But there's also these linkages where the way that we farm, the way that we have been farming particularly since uh, the end of the Second World War, is contributing. It's part of the driver of, of seeing the, the anthropogenic change that we're dealing with right now. So we, we, we have to work um, by having a, a very broad lens and we have to work with nature rather than trying to, to think that we can dominate her. And so this systems approach... Of, of understanding not only movement of carbon. The good news is that if we are able to sequester, to see more organic carbon go back into the soil, it's not only putting um, that organic matter into the soil. The soil is going to hold more moisture and it's going to have a better range of nutrients so that the, the plants and the animals that are that are managed on that land themselves uh, will become uh, have a better nutrient profile for us. The, the challenge we have now with trying to figure out how to do things is that we're, there's a lot of science going on and things are changing um, and the information that's coming through can be a lot to absorb. Also, one of the big challenges on the food side and, and even dealing with um, public health researchers or climate researchers is often if we talk about food, we just talk about a lettuce or we'll talk about a chicken and we'll measure their, their carbon footprint. The, the difficulty is that you can produce lettuces in very many different ways and you can produce a chicken in many different ways. And it's looking at those different systems about how what system is most appropriate for the area of land or uh, if you're going to be doing aquaculture, how can you do that in a way that fits the local area and that minimises disturbances and in some cases helps to um, improve, to regenerate the quality of water and of land? In Australia, for instance, since uh, colonisation, the estimate is that 50% of our soil carbon has been lost. So if we are able to enable farmers to be able to farm in a way that gets that carbon and back into the soil, locks it in, um, 
that's going to be very positive. So we know that um, having tree cover is good, that that will help to sequester carbon, that it will reduce wind speed um, to to reduce the drying of land uh, with these very windy days that we're seeing. And there's some lovely work that's just come out of uh, California that's showing that perennial pasture species, so these pasture species, grasses that just grow, once you plant them, they're there and they're there through throughout the four seasons. They can put down very long roots. So in fact, there's more of the plant under the soil than there is above it. So there, there's light on the horizon, but there's an enormous amount of work that we need to do to bring the various arms of science together and then to have that engagement with society uh, about what are the systems that we want, that we think are going to be able to nourish us and also sustain us into the future. And they're, they're going to be local discussions because the various cuisines that we see across the world, all of those different cuisines reflect the way that community was able to survive using their in their own local system. So there is not going to be one sustainable diet. There are going to be multiple and it's going to be a really exciting period as farmers, fishers and, and foodies come together to figure out how do we do this in a way that's going to be good for all of us? Absolutely, and, I, and I, I, that reminded me, having having sat with the the round table for food, um, you, you can you can easily get distracted into what is an ideal diet, and I, I really do think allowing communities to have a voice in that um, is part of the solution to it. I did want to bring my other guest in at this point in time, Tayana O'Donnell. We'd, we've done some great discussion this week and, and I was really um, pleased to be part of a, a conversation around climate change adaptation. Um, uh, when you're working on, on adaptation in climate change, how, how much of these other factors play into the work, work that you've been doing? And how do you see food playing out um, in terms of how cities and, and regions might be adapting to the climate change uh, challenge? Thanks, Anna Greta, and lovely to be here and uh, to be part of this discussion. From my perspective, when we're thinking about climate change adaptation, our starting point must be that we have to keep our foot on the pedal uh, in reducing our emissions. Uh, so that is, we can't neglect mitigation uh, for the benefit or or to progress adaptation. Mitigation and adaptation must go together. That said, the climate system has changed enough to uh, now realise that adaptation needs to be thought of and it needs to be front and centre of our discussions uh, for human futures and for the other um, aspects of our natural system, you know, animals and plants and, and the more than human uh, and their futures. So from that that premise or that starting point, I think we can think about climate change adaptation as a as a way of thinking about our current versus potential future world. Um, and there are probably multiple future trajectories that uh, we are at the crossroads of at this point in time in society. Um, I think that's really well said. Yep. Um, yeah, 2020 is <laughs> has has certainly been a year um, for a lot. It's of the year of hashtag human future. Um, it really <laughs> and is. Indeed, There's and, and never future been Earth, a better that's, time. That's the kind of work yep. we're trying to do in 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 future Earth too. Is to you know yep. enable these discussions. So it's it's so great to be um, 
to, to be connecting in and and really driving that agenda forward. Um, but just coming back to the the climate adaptation premise, so if we if we recognise that we need to mitigate and adapt at the same time, that's pretty transformative change. Uh, over the last fifteen years, um, we've seen some movement. Most uh, academic scholars, uh, myself included, when I'm wearing my academic hat, would argue that that change has been largely incremental. Um, but I, I, I don't want to phrase that in, in a negative way. Um, they're, they're big systemic challenges, uh, societal challenges. And when you start talking about that, what you're really talking about are institutions and their ability to move and adapt in changing circumstances. You're talking about individuals' um, values, uh, their ethics. Um, we're talking about economic systems more broadly. And we absolutely must, in, in all of that, really think about what we mean by knowledge and whose knowledge we preference. And there's been an overwhelming tendency to preference Western knowledge and Western ways of doing things uh, over other knowledges. And the result of all of that has been that we've kind of, not kind of, we have uh, constructed a world that is is really untenable. Um, and it's untenable because we're running on complacency. We're sort of running on this and a little bit is just enough uh, as opposed to the big leaps that need to happen. Um, we, we have a world that demands that we consume uh, in order to benefit so it's very individual focused um, and it's very focused on growth as a way of measuring prosperity. Um, when what we really need, if we're serious about adaptation and we have to be serious about adaptation um, because climate change is here, whether we like it or not, we need to, in my view, reorient towards a more community focused way of organising the human and the more than human world. And we need to uh, take seriously ideas of governments and other entities using health and well-being as the broad framework for a prosperous society, uh, as opposed to the default model, which is you know GDP and economic growth. Um, we can have economic prosperity, but it shouldn't be the the spine. It shouldn't be the the cornerstone um, for an adapted human future, because um, the planet is not going to allow it. I think, um, and that applies to food systems water, um, our ecosystems and biodiversity, right across the broad. Uh, I, I should confess right now that I did not put you up to that, that health and wellbeing is the core framework for our human activity. Um, it's a, a beautiful line um, and I, I think this is a great spot for us to take a little break. Uh, reflecting on some of the points that you've just made, if we take uh, the idea of our complacency, that a little bit is enough and that consumption is driving our behaviour, if we take those three elements and we put it over Robin's discussion of food, we start to see some of our solutions. And so at this point in time, we'll take a little break and we'll be back just in one moment. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with Plush Care. PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at PlushCare.com slash weight loss. That's PlushCare.com slash weight loss. PlushCare.com slash weight loss. 
Around the world, democracies are in crisis. Leaders have become followers. Populists offer glib solutions to complex problems, and people search for answers. Block out the noise. Each week on Democracy Sausage, we go deeper to bring you insights from leading scholars, journalists, and commentators to help you make sense of the world. I'm Mark Kenny from the Australian National University. Join me at the Democracy Sausage Hot Plate every Monday and Thursday. Okay, well, welcome back to the Policy Forum Pod. I'll just recap on where we were. We've had a fantastic conversation listening to Robin uh, take us through the food report from the Commission of the Human Future, thinking about food security and the challenges that are faced in our food, uh, access to food around the world uh, at this point in, in our future or in our now. We've just also heard from Tayana about our, how we might frame our human future. Uh, that the world has increasingly grown in its complacency, in our, our incapacity to really contend with the big issues. And we are now in an economic model that is so badly consumed by consumption um, that growth is the only form of prosperity. And that potentially some of those elements, if shifted, could make a radical difference to our human future. So I'd like to stop at this point and, and put in another element, um, that other thing that's happening in the outside world, uh, the coronavirus pandemic. It's a radical, transformative disruption. So many things have changed in our life. Our, our behaviour, our interaction, our human uh, experience has all been disrupted by the coronavirus pandemic. And so I'd like to hear perhaps first with, from Tayana about the experiences that you've had with the coronavirus and how you see that feeding into the policy opportunities for climate change and for creating our human future. The coronavirus has demonstrated very well the role of government in leading and providing reassurance to society when our social systems are experiencing a big shock. Um, the coronavirus for Australia is not the first big shock we've had in the last 12 months. Uh, certainly the bushfires were another large shock. And so Australians, I think, across the board are reeling from this series of knocks that we've had over the last six to nine months in particular. Um, so the, the point about that is to really put front and centre that there is a role for government and I say that because a lot of the discussion in climate change, both mitigation and adaptation, has been uh, very excited to see some forward momentum from the private sector, particularly around disclosure of climate risk and what signals that sends to the market and therefore changes to behaviour and investment and other things. Um, that's been good work, but there is a role for government and we can't lose sight of that. I think um, also what has been on show, particularly with COVID in Australia, is the role of science in providing um, quick, thorough scientific evidence to inform decision-making. Uh, we should see more of that across the board, including for climate change mitigation and adaptation. And I think um, just to round out those thoughts, COVID teaches us that minimising negative impacts of systems-wide risk, in this case health risk, um, demands from us a swift and coordinated, a scalable 
response and, and it really needs to come from all sectors but there must be um, the leadership to help drive that and to help bring the community along with that series uh, or those trajectories of decision making. Uh, they're fantastic points. Government leadership uh, for our, for our social, social systems in shock and for, for many of us I think have spent time contrasting our experience watching the climate change challenges of 2019 and the bushfire at the end of that with the, the federal government response to coronavirus which has been much more impressive um, and the real benefit that that plays for our community. Um, the role of science many people have touched on and it really it's it's so nice to see scientific advice being taken seriously uh, by by our community by our colleagues by our friends and by our government um, and I, I really I like that that last point about the fact that we can minimize the negative impacts of, uh, of the system-wide uh, challenges that are faced by various threats and in fact any of the potential catastrophic or existential threats that have been discussed by the Commission fit into this model, I think, quite nicely. Robin, what's been your experience with coronavirus and, and where do you think the opportunities for change that, that might emerge from this extraordinary experience that we're living through? Indeed, they are amazing days. And I, what I'd like to do is take us back to January. So COVID-19, the coronavirus was spreading, but wasn't a major issue in Australia at that time. And as you um, and, and uh, Tayana have, have mentioned, we were dealing with bushfires. We were coming off an unprecedented drought, a drought of a form that um, people can't ever remember seeing one like it before, and floods. So there had been decimation um, in, in many places, both of, of people, of their, their, their dwellings, of farmland, and, and in particular of, of our, um, uh, our national parks. So we came into COVID-19 in pretty rough shape, really, um, if you're thinking about those who produce food. And so what, by having to just stop, and, and I don't want to underplay some of the hardship that these um, changes, the, the public health restrictions have caused uh, in order to control COVID-19, but it has given us a chance to stop and to think uh, firstly, about the people who put the food on the supermarket shelves, about how important they are. Um, we've been very good at saying um, or getting better at saying thank you to the frontline health staff. But it is those, it's the farm labourers who we know is it's now for our next harvest season. Just yesterday, a survey uh, came out from the New South Wales farmers saying, what are your labour requirements? Because for many of our most nutritious fruit and vegetables. They're all perishable foods and they have to be picked at the right time. And that has often been done either by backpackers or by um, uh, migrant workers from Asia, um, Timor-Leste and, and the Pacific. And with movement restrictions, this is really laying bare how, how fragile our food system is. The other thing that uh, it's given us time to think about what we value and and when we talk about economic growth well growth of what so i actually think uh that covid19 uh is an opportunity for us to see how everything has to work together and has to work together well we're valuing our our health staff i'd also love to see us value better the, the people involved with food production, distribution, 
um, and preparation. And to be honest, I would love to see public health completely revamped. And I would love to see public health, not only being public health specialists, but to see that interaction between our Department of Agriculture, Water and Environment and our Department of Health, because you cannot have healthy societies without good food and safe water. So for me, after all of this turbulence, if it can help us to rethink the way our government manages systems, the way um, private sector and individual consumers work together um, to put the value on the quality of our food and, and to do so in a way that it's affordable by those who, who need it most. Absolutely. A great uh, way perhaps to, to begin to wrap up this conversation. Uh, I think the supply chain vulnerabilities in food have been extraordinary and we're seeing it in medicine as well where we don't have access to um, our pharmaceutical supply chain has been uh, demonstrated to have quite significant vulnerabilities. And so we, we do need to begin to think about how, we, how our, our economic systems work in a time of such uh, tremendous health challenge. And I think that final comment about what we value, um, an opportunity to sit and to to think about how work plays out and how our relationships play out and what it means to care for community. I thought I, I could reflect a little, I'm going to be indulgent as the host. I, I came to working in climate change and health from, from an interesting route. I haven't been an environmental activist. I'm a cardiologist and I, I spend a lot of time talking with people about managing high, things like high blood pressure and diabetes and their heart disease. And some of the commonalities in, in most of our elements of health come down to exercise and food. And so increasingly I found myself distracted by the fact that our health solutions uh, for, for so, such a huge range of common conditions that many of us will be affected with across our lifetime might come from how and where we live, from the cities that we live in, from the social interactions that we have, through the way in which we're taught about food and the way in which we learn to cook. Um, and so I'm, I've, I've been fascinated in these, I guess, interdisciplinary or, or transdisciplinary discussions. And I think for all three of us at the table today, it's these intersectorial discussions which will help us to imagine a better world and, a, and, and hopefully help with transforming our human future, perhaps onto the pathway that allows us to have a healthier life. Tayana, would you like to comment on some of the challenges and opportunities that you see in your experience of interdisciplinary and transdisciplinary discussion and work? The, the challenge is really um, institutional and historical institutional factors, particularly with respect to scientific and academic research. Um, in the Australian context, there is a framework for assigning your research to particular research codes, and they are very uh, disciplinary focused, and universities are incentivized to encourage that. And indeed, um, younger scholars are encouraged to specialise first, and, and um, this is a direct quote from a global meeting I attended when such things were possible, um, quote, you can do that transdisciplinary stuff when you've had 20 plus years of experience and you're a professor, <laughs> end quote. Um, but the younger cohort that are coming through realise, indeed, funders and others realise that the need for impact and the need for producing research that is usable and timely and relevant 
demands that we take an inter and transdisciplinary approach. And by that, I mean, we can do our scientific research through more than one um, method or one theoretical framework. Um, We could partner with others and form a research team representing different um, perspectives. And from the perspective of the work that Future Earth is trying to do, and I think it's the same with um, the Commission for Human Futures too, Anna Greta, trying to connect across sectors uh, and at different scales in a society to really harness the the different knowledge that different people bring to the table. Um, And when you do that, you usually get a really creative and robust process and outcomes that can enable some of this change that we we know needs to happen. So um, I'm, I'm all for it. I think um, it would be really wonderful if universities and the incentives that universities um, are governed by gave inter and transdisciplinary research some more considered thought because I think there's huge opportunities there and mm. um, it would be remiss of us not to to take advantage of that. Yeah, so that's a really interesting point to make that that we do find external funders and philanthropic organisations are really interested in these transdisciplinary solutions or interdisciplinary solutions. And yes, there's a difference between those two things, um, but but we're still stuck in a funding model. And I know for climate change and health research, for example, uh, that the NHMRC hasn't funded uh, research in uh, climate change and health now for more than a decade. <laughs> and one of those challenges is interdisciplinary um, uh, models so that the ARC on one side and NHMRC and if you've got doctors involved it becomes very complicated yeah from from what from the little that I understand of it um Robin you you've you've been thinking around uh interdisciplinary transdisciplinary discussions as well for some time have you got some observations into this question of how to do this better um absolutely and I I I, I really feel for our um the the current crop of um of researchers and doers who are who are coming out into the world right now? I, I, they will change the world. Um, systems will have to change to w- in the way that they recognise excellence. We we've been locked in, in within academia into a, a, a metrics driven system of measuring what we can measure, and we all know that right now we're in a situation where we're not even sure what we need to measure. Um, but we know that we have to do something. So I think the next generation will will drive change, and I think the the government and the private sector needs to be willing to take risks um, for us to be able to simply move forward. The other thing I, I wanted to mention was that I think um, if you look at academic uh, disciplines, the ones that are ranked ranked highly, if you look in the private sector as to the positions and the activities that are valued, they often tend to be more male-dominated professions. And you mentioned earlier, Anna Greta, simply food preparation. It's not really been taken seriously. It was often seen, certainly in my, um, in my youth, it was, you know, I did home science um, and I learned to touch type because I was either going to be a wife or a secretary or both. And yet we're coming to find out that both of those skills are actually really, really important and so I think as we go forward, um, we we need to think about what we value to try and be more nurturing, more caring. And I think from our Indigenous Australians, particularly for those of us here in Australia, Indigenous Australians have not asked us to go anywhere. 
They're very welcoming. What they would simply like us to do is care for our country. So the idea of mining soil, mining water, mining minerals is not necessarily, that's, that's a, a colonial, that's an extractive mentality. We need to learn from Indigenous Australians who have lived on this uh, land for over 60,000 years about nurturing ourselves, nurturing community and absolutely caring and nurturing our country. So I think it might simply just be good for us uh, and, and we need to find a way to get on and, and do it. Absolutely. That's a fantastic point uh, to make, I think, as we, we head towards wrapping up. I'm really struck by these systems of knowledge and that we have become um, deeply enmeshed in the consumptogenic model of, of growth that, that leads to poor outcomes from a health perspective and that, that it's, it's about growth and consumption that, dr that drives our economic agenda. Um, there's there's so much to learn from Indigenous perspectives and we, we um, had to provide as much space for those discussions. We, we, we all need to learn. Um, I, I particularly need to learn more. We've, we've had a fantastic conversation today. I'm so grateful to Tayana and to Robin for joining me uh, on for a conversation which has been broad and global and encompasses elements of life that affect all of us, particularly with food, as a central example of a wicked problem that affects all elements of society, of how we live, of where we live, uh, and of the sorts of challenges that we're going to face as, as climate change takes off and grows. I think some of the takeaway messages from a from a policy lesson perspective include uh, the role of government in tackling serious threats, and, and we would encourage uh, as many policymakers as possible to read the report on food from the Commission for the Human Future, and to engage with scientists and policymakers around uh, and thinkers around the the further development uh, and approaches to difficult challenges particularly climate change. But I think also we can learn from different perspectives of knowledge. Um, and Indigenous knowledge is different, is framed differently to our Western understanding. And the, the potential that some ideas in that framework uh, recreate a human future, which is extraordinary, I think is a genuine one. I will invite my two panellists to give any final comments before we wrap up. Robin Alders. Thanks so much for, for, for the opportunity. And, and as we come through COVID, use this opportunity to, to come together. And, and as the United Nations is saying, we want to build back better, but we can only do that if everybody's involved in the conversation. So really keep talking, keep engaging, and absolutely stay engaged with, with those that are making policies on our behalf. Thank you, Robin and Tayana. Thanks, Anna Greta. And thank you too, Robin. I really uh, enjoyed and wholeheartedly agreed with your comments around Indigenous knowledge and holding space for our First Nations people. Um, I think in closing, from my perspective, I would just like to reiterate to the listeners um, the need to maintain hope and to approach our futures from a hopeful lens. I think it's particularly after the last six months, um, it's, it, it's, it would be understandable um, for people to be feeling less than optimistic about what our future will look like. Um, but I'm always inspired by uh, the tenacity and creativeness of young people and in our ability as humans to really uh, 
undertake or, or participate in transformative change. And I think we can do that. And I think um, maintaining hope and being hopeful and excited about the future is uh, an important way to keep the momentum and motivation uh, in, in our day-to-day lives. Absolutely. That's a great place to leave our conversation uh, and I would uh, join in that call. I think it now is the time for all of us to sit and to reflect and to imagine the world in the next 5, 10 or 25 or even 100 years. We really have an opportunity now to craft a future which is radically different to the one that we are, we are leaving. Uh, and those opportunities don't only come up once in a lifetime. So it's a, it's a great time for imagination. Thank you so much to my two panellists today. Uh, Professor Robin Alder and Dr. Tayana O'Donnell. Uh, it's been a fantastic discussion and I am most grateful for their time. So listeners, do you have any thoughts, questions or suggestions on today's episode? Something you'd like me to ask our panellists on next week's episode? Get in touch with us now. We're on Twitter as at APPS Policy Forum or send us a, a, an email at podcast at policyforum.net. Or better yet, if you haven't done so at the beginning of the pod, join us on Facebook. You can find the pod squad under Policy Forum Pod. And if you don't want to miss out on next week's special or any future episodes of Policy Forum Pod, you should definitely subscribe to us. We're on Acast, Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you usually get your favourite shows from. Once you've subscribed, you might also want to leave us a quick review. It'd really help us to get the word out about this pod series. I look forward to joining you again next week for a further discussion on our human future. ACAST powers the world's best podcasts. Here's a show that we recommend. The Real Housewives is a guilty pleasure for most, but if you're looking to not feel guilty about that pleasure, tune in to Everything Iconic with me, Danny Pellegrino, where I break down all the messy moments and behind-the-scenes antics of Bravo's popular franchise. And on Everything Iconic, I also interview celebrity guests like Kelly Ripa, Kiki Palmer, Drew Barrymore, Cameron Diaz, and more about their guilty pleasures, their past work, and so much more. So if you're pop culture obsessed and find yourself watching way too much reality TV like me, tune in to Everything Iconic with Danny Pellegrino, wherever you listen to podcasts. ACAST helps creators launch, grow, and monetize their podcasts everywhere. ACAST.com.